I'm Pastor Daryl Curtis, and you're listening to my 56th sermon on the biblical design of gender, in which my point is that before sexual activity begins, a man will make a volitional decision to marry a woman and propose marriage to her, followed by the acceptance of the man's proposal of marriage by the woman. The following is a presentation of the Family Life Baptist Church in Lansing, Michigan. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com. Sixth day of the month of December, the last Sunday in 2010. Uh, our lesson for this morning is our 56th sermon, 56th sermon in our series on the biblical design of gender. And the text is in the 10th verse of the 12th chapter of the book of 2 Samuel, and it reads as follows Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. God bless the reading of his word and let us bow our heads in a word of prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you afresh for the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ, for the perfect teaching ministry of your blessed Holy Spirit, and for his ability to explain your word. So, Lord, give us the words to say and let us say them with liberty, with clarity, and with boldness, and that somebody listening might believe the report. Thanking you in advance for all that you are going to do in the strong and perfect name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Now, thank you very much for coming to hear our message for today. And before we begin this, our next lesson, let us reiterate our reason for attending church. We attend church to obtain the mind of Christ, meaning to have the Bible illuminated in our minds so that we can clearly understand the principles that Jesus taught and base our daily personal decisions on those principles. We come to church because we want to be obedient to the Bible, which is the doctrine of Jesus Christ in an informed, insightful, and intelligent manner. And our takeaway point in this series on the biblical design of gender is that God has designed man as the cooperative coalition of husband and wife so that man can successfully achieve the objective that God has given us to exercise dominion over the earth, developing wisdom and knowledge in preparation for further responsibility in our eternal life. Now, in our last few lessons, we have examined the tragic downfall of David, who as the great warrior king of Israel offended God by committing adultery with and impregnating the beautiful Bathsheba, the wife of one of his soldiers who was on the battlefield. And then David exacerbated his crime by bringing Bathsheba's husband Uriah home from the war to go home to make love to his wife so that Uriah would be deceived into thinking that he fathered the child that Bathsheba was to bear in nine months. When Uriah refused to go to his house, 
but rather remain with the troops at the palace, David sent Uriah back to the front with a message to his general, telling the general to put Uriah on a mission that would lead to his death. And after Uriah was killed and Bathsheba completed her, her mourning period for him, David married Bathsheba. But God was displeased and sent the prophet Nathan to chastise David. 2 Samuel 12, 7-10 records, Then Nathan said to David, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Now, King David, being a devout man, humbly received the rebuke that the Lord sent by the prophet Nathan. Second Samuel chapter 12, verse 13 and 14 records, So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die, however, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also who is born to you shall surely die. And in our last lesson, we chronicle the death of the child and David's response to that death. The child was ill for seven days, during which David remained prostrate, fasting and praying to God for the life of his child. However, God did not relent. When the child died, David surprised his men, however, by rising from his prostrate prayer position, washing himself, worshiping, calling for food and eating. But David explained himself in 2 Samuel 12, 22 and 23, and David said, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. And once the child died, David's punishment appeared to be over. Paul explained to the Corinthian church, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9 and 10, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. And God put away David's sins because David was repentant. And in response to Nathan's admonishment, David wrote the 51st Psalm, which says to the chief musician, a Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba, have mercy upon me, O God, 
according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. So David, asking to be washed and cleansed by God, was certainly repentant. And David made no excuses. David went on to say, Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. And then David asked God for mercy as he said, Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. And David promised to bring forth fruits according to repentance, as he said, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise, for you do not desire sacrifice, or I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. So David was a repentant man. And God blessed his repentance, as 2 Samuel 12, 24 and 25 tells us. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her and lay with her. So she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him, and he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. And in the birth of Solomon, David had the son of the blessing of God. But David still had more problems as the result of his sin, as our text, 2 Samuel 12 and 10 tells us, Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Now Solomon was David's youngest son, and the one that was to be blessed by the Lord, but David had other sons by his other wives. Second Samuel 3, 2 Samuel 3, 2-5 says, Sons were born to David in Hebron. 
His firstborn was Amnon by Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess. His second, Chiliah, by Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. The third, Absalom, the son of Machab, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. The fifth, Sheptiah, the son of Abitai, and the sixth, Ithrim, by David's wife, Egla. These were born to David in Hebrew. And David also had a daughter, as Second Samuel 13, 1 and 2 tells us. After this, Absalom, the son of David, had a lovely sister whose name was Tamar. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. Amnon was so distressed over his sister Tamar that he became sick, for she was a virgin, and it was improper for Amnon to do anything to her. Now Amnon was the son of David's wife Ahinoam, while Tamar was the daughter of David's wife Makkah. Both are David's children, but each of David's wives has their own area in the palace. Now Amnon knew of the impropriety of having any type of relations with his half-sister, but because of Amnon's father David's sin, Amnon felt entitled, even as David felt entitled when he saw Bathsheba. And unfortunately, Amnon had a scheming friend that encouraged him to commit sin, as 2 Samuel 13, 3-6 records. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimei, David's brother. Now Jonadab was a very crafty man, and he said to him, Why are you, the king's son, becoming thinner day after day? Why will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. So Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Please let my sister Tamar come and give me food and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat from her hand. Then Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let Tamar, my sister, come and make a couple of cakes for me in my sight that I, that I may eat it from her hand. Then Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my came, uh, sister come in and make a couple of cakes for me in my sight, that I may eat from her hand. Now it may have been that the king did not understand that which Amnon had in mind, but the king knew that it was improper for Amnon to do anything to Tamar. So the interaction that Amnon proposed was inappropriate in and of itself. But the king was somewhat crippled in his ability to make decisions by his own impropriety. And it is important for children that their parents always be leaders. It is especially important, even in our generation, that a man that fathers children by more than one woman be a leader to his children, and this is David's situation. Children are naturally self-centered, and male ch children in particular require a dominant male in the home 
to restrain their self-centeredness as they go through puberty. And to give it from the animal kingdom shows the need for parental restraint. In a particular African game preserve, the keepers decided for some reason to remove the older bull elephants from the preserve. The keepers saw the immediate effect that the young male elephants began aggressively killing the rhinoceroses in the preserve. But when the older bull elephants were brought back into the preserve, they kept the younger male elephants in line and the killing of the rhinoceroses ceased. And the point is that young males need older males as leaders to control them and teach them the behavior that is proper for an adult male. And one of the great tragedies in our society is the high number of female-headed single-parent households in our culture, in which the first dominant male that a plurality of the young males meet is a policeman or a prison guard. These men provide the restraint that fathers should provide, but their intervention generally comes once the young man has ruined his life. And it is interesting that when a young woman from this type of family becomes pregnant out of wedlock, the females in the family rather together, rather together to take care of the baby because of their affinity for taking care of babies. Babies are cute and cuddly, and the personal satisfaction that these women receive from breastfeeding and caring for an infant makes them loathe to put the infant up for adoption. But the problem that this situation creates is that the infant does not remain an infant for more than a year or two, but begins to grow up. Soon, the infant passes the infancy stage his behavior is no longer cute, and before long, the adults in the female-headed household realize that they do not have the cuddly little baby that they wanted. Now, if you go to the toy store at Christmas time, you will find that a popular gift for female children is a baby doll, because it is fun for a young girl to imagine herself taking care of a baby. And a baby shower is a rite of passage for women about to become mothers. However, you never see female children receiving a preteen doll because it is not in the imagination of a girl to imagine taking care of a nine-year-old boy. But a nine-year-old boy is exactly that which male babies become. And nine-year-old boys really need strong fathers. Young male adolescents especially need strong male leaders as well. And as I mentioned earlier, if young males do not have the discipline provided by a dominant male at home, they will receive it somewhere, be it on the athletic field, in the street gang, or in the criminal justice system. The design of God is that fathers be the first line of discipline for their male children. But a weak father leads to a power vacuum in the home and nature abhors a vacuum. Someone else always steps into the vacuum and takes it over. Now David provided strong leadership as the king of the nation. But after David sinned with Bathsheba, David felt crippled in his ability to provide moral leadership. His adultery and his attention to Bathsheba 
who was his mistress before she was his wife, diminished David's status in the eyes of his sons, and they looked less to David as a moral leader. David had the opportunity to act strongly to reestablish his leadership role among his sons by forbidding Amnon to do anything immoral to Tamar, but David's feelings of guilt led him to abdicate his leadership position and send, as it were, the lamb to the slaughter. Rather than acting as a father and a leader, David indulged his son, as Second Samuel 13 and 7 records, and David sent home to Tamar, saying, Now go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. And indulging a young man, anticipating an immoral escapade, rarely leads to good results. As Second Samuel 13, 8 through 11 records, So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, and he was lying down. Then she took flour and kneaded it, made cakes in his side, and baked the cakes. Then she took the plan and placed them before him, but he refused to eat. Then Amnon said, Have everyone go out from me. And they all went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the bedroom that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them to to Amnon her brother in the bedroom. Now, When she had brought them to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to me, Come lie with me, my sister. Tamar both protested and resisted, but her protest fell on deaf ears and her resistance was futile. 2 Samuel 13, 14 and 15 record, However, Amnon would not heed Tamar's voice, and being stronger than she, Amnon forced Tamar and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Arise, be gone. Now whatever fantasy that Amnon had about her interaction with Tamar was not fulfilled by the reality. And having had Tamar, Amnon rejected Tamar. Of course, this is a point about out-of-wedlock sex. Tamar was raped and did not bear any culpability in this case. But in our culture, young women promiscuously agree to allow themselves to be used sexually and then wonder why the young men with whom they have had illicit relations reject The reason is that the bonding hormone, oxytocin, that females have in abundance is not shared by males. Males do not bond hormonally, but as a function of their own conscious decision to bond, which is why God instituted marriage in the first place. So regardless of how well a woman can satisfy a man sexually, Men rarely make commitment decisions while in the throes of passion. Men may confess their love for a woman while having sex, but when the act is completed, the cold light of day causes men to rethink their rash decision made in heat. The women often don't realize the reality of their hormonal responses to sex 
and find themselves inexplicably disappointed when the man to whom they have given themselves decides that their gift did not seal the deal. But extramarital sex is not in the biblical design of gender. The biblical design of gender is that before sexual activity begins, a man will make a volitional decision to marry a woman and propose marriage to her, followed by the acceptance of the man's proposal of marriage by the woman. Hebrews 13 and 4 tells us, marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. And as I mentioned in the last lesson, love is not an emotion, but a decision. The marriage proposal is a pledge by the man to decide to act lovingly toward the woman that he wishes to make his wife. And the acceptance of the marriage proposal is the pledge of the woman to decide to act lovingly toward the man that has asked to be her husband. Of course, being human, we feel the emotions associated with finding the person with whom we will share the rest of our lives. But during the ceremony that solemnizes the marriage, we do not deal in emotions, but commitments. Neither a husband nor a wife can realistically pledge to always feel a certain way toward their spouse. But both a husband and a wife can realistically, realistically pledge to always act in a certain way toward their spouse, whether they feel like it or not. Now, I am a trained concert pianist, but my parents had absolutely no musical talent. I did not learn to play because of an inherited trait or musical history in my family. I learned to play because I had a teacher that said that I could learn if I put in seven hours of practice for every one hour of lessons. And mama made me take a lesson every week and practice for an hour every day. Thus, I developed musical skill, not because of a love for music or because I was talented, but simply because mama made me put in the time and effort. And marriage is the same way. Many years before our current idea of choosing a spouse because we feel a certain emotion for them became the norm, people often married sight unseen. My wife's paternal grandfather was working in a coal mine in a town in which there were virtually no single women, and the single men of the town wrote letters to the surrounding towns requesting women to come to the town that wanted to be wives. And when the women that came met the men, they married without a courtship period and set up housekeeping. Their marriages were not based upon attraction or emotion, but upon the commitment of the women to fulfill the role of a wife and the commitment of the men to fulfill the role of a husband. And interestingly, simply by fulfilling their marital roles, the emotions that we prize so much develop spontaneously. Because the truth of the matter is that actions can create emotions much more easily than we can develop emotions by taking thought. But Amnon 
looked at Tamar's facial features or her contours or her legs or her toes, and Amnon felt a lustful emotion toward Tamar. Amnon acted on his emotion, but once he achieved his objective, he found that the emotion faded and he no longer wanted Tamar. Amnon was attracted to Tamar, but Amnon was never committed to Tamar. And to a man, attraction without commitment is worthless because it is temporary. And the biblical design of the male gender is that attraction without commitment is temporary, and it would behoove women to become aware of that. However, Because of the difference in the design of the genders, women need a male protector to ascertain the intentions of the male that is pursuing them and to make sure that the pursuing male makes the necessary commitment before he consummates whatever attraction he may feel. And that was the role that David was supposed to play, but David defaulted on his role. However, Tamar had a protector, albeit after the fact. Second Samuel 13, 19-29 records that after being raped, then Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her robe of many colors that was on her and laid her hand on her head and went away crying bitterly. And Absalom, her brother, said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? But now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this thing to heart. So Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. But when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry, and Absalom spoke to his brother Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamar. And it came to pass, after two full years, that Absalom had sheep shears in Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim, So Absalom invited all the king's sons. Then Absalom came to the king and said, Kindly note, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be a burden to you. Then he urged him, but he would not go, and he blessed him. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom urged him, so he let Amnon and all the king's son go with him. Now Absalom had commanded his servants, saying, Watch now, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, Strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not be afraid. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's son arose, and each one got on his mule and fled. So Absalom became Tamar's protector. Since David abdicated his fatherly preventative role, Absalom took over and took revenge on Amnon for raping Tamar. And the death of Amnon was only the first of the deaths of David's son, as the text, 2 Samuel 12, 10 tells us, Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house 
because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Now the A portion of Romans 6.23 tells us, for the wages of sin is death. And as we saw in our last lesson, David's first son by Bathsheba died because of David's sin. And now David's oldest son Amnon by Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, has now been killed because of his sin. David could have prevented Amnon's sin had David not been crippled in his ability to protect his daughter by his own impropriety. Thus, the truth of the statement of in Romans is once again proven. Even if God does not act directly to judge our sin as he did with the child of Bathsheba, the passions ignited by the unjustness of sin will lead us to destroy one another. But the full text of Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is the reason to become a Christian. Romans chapter 5 verse 18 through 21 tells us, Therefore, as though through one man, that is Adam's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so through one man, that is Jesus Christ's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in the justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, also by one man's obedience, many will be, ma will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life, through Christ Jesus our Lord. So God is gracious to us because of our sin. And Titus 3, 5, and 7 tells us, that it is not by the works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, our sin nature exists. We cannot look down on Amnon because but for the grace of God, we will find ourselves in the situation. If those of us that consider ourselves upstanding citizens are honest with ourselves, we can look back over our lives and recognize situations in which we have sinfully involved ourselves that had it not been for the grace of God, we might be in a similar situation as David and or Amnon, having a child killed or being murdered ourselves as the retribution for our sin. But the Lord Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, has come down from heaven and died actually, physically, and historically on the cross of Calvary, 
in our place to pay the penalty that we owe for the sins that we have committed. And then the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead, actually, physically and historically, on that first Easter Sunday morning, and has sent us his Holy Spirit to guide us through the minefield of sin, to keep our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Now, I am blessed to be a relatively moral person, faithful to my wife, not by my own volition, but by the grace of God that functions as a regulator in my mind and keeps me away from sinfulness. It is not by my works of righteousness which I have done, but according to God's mercy that I speak to you today. And as we enter the new year of 2011, let us recognize the influence of God in our daily lives. Let us not be deceived into thinking that we stand because of our own goodness or of our own righteousness. For in point of fact, Isaiah 64 and 6 tells us, but we are all like an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We are, we all fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. But let us recognize our ability to maintain our morality is the function of the blessing of the grace of God that is overriding our sin nature and giving us access to a holy nature. And let us decide to practice diligently and daily, even as I practiced the piano when I was a child. Those things that the Holy Spirit tells us will make us stronger in the Lord. The disciplines of prayer, Bible study, worship, fellowship, and witness. And let us not arrogantly decide that we are good Christians that should be looked up to, but let us recognize that we are blessed by God to escape from the consequences of our sin. As 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 10, verse 12 through 13 tells us, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And God gives us that way of escape because, as John three sixteen and 17 tells us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. For God does not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Our morality and our salvation is strictly a function of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Let us not arrogantly forget that which Jesus Christ has done and is doing for us. And let us continue to pray for the ability to lean and rely on his grace as we practice the lessons that he teaches us in this hour. And that is our lesson for today. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you this morning for this lesson and 
We understand that the sin of mankind is all around us and that we ourselves have a sin nature, but that you have sent us the Holy Spirit, your Holy Spirit, that he might guide and direct us into living the proper life that would be pleading and pleasing in your sight. And we ask you, Lord, that you would make us good followers, even as you were a good leader, even as you walked the path and lived a sinless life. We ask you, Lord, that you would imbue us with your grace, that we might follow your example and follow in your footsteps. And now, Lord, we thank you for all that are in the house today. And we ask you that you would give us traveling mercies as we go down from this place and then bring us back once again at the appointed time and now, Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross, for rising from the dead on that Sunday morning. Thank you, Lord, in the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and Thank you for listening. We hope you were blessed by this presentation. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com.